Hey everyone, it's Maurice. If you've been listening to the show and you like what you hear, you can become a patron of Revision Path today. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and you can join at the $5 level to get behind the scenes exclusive access on upcoming interviews, new articles, and episodes of our special patrons only podcast. Join at the new $20 level and you'll get everything at the $5 level plus a free Revision Path logo enamel pin plus a swag pack full of goodies. So check it out today, patreon.com forward slash revision path. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design invests in building and teaching designers using the best tools for the job. I asked design manager Matthew Schoenholtz what he has learned about design since working at Facebook. I think the amazing uh, ability for designers to collaborate across such a wide breadth of areas. Um, we have an amazing set of tools um, and just to see how people can use a modern tool set to rapidly create high quality, high fidelity designs like super fast. And so that's the first time I've really seen a company work in such a live, like test live kind of model. That's wonderful to see, um, like how quickly we can get data to learn about what we should be doing next. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Are you looking to hire someone for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, College Vine in Cambridge, Massachusetts is looking for a senior product designer. And Glitch is looking for the following positions for their New York City office. A full stack engineer, a community marketing manager, and a VP of people. If you're looking to diversify your designer dev teams, post your job listings with us. For just $99, your listing will be seen on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you through our podcast and our weekly job alerts. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I wanted to talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Glitch is a friendly community where everyone can discover and create the best stuff on the web. I'm talking cutting-edge VR experiences, smart bots, useful tools to solve problems at work, apps that help advance important causes, I mean, you name it, you can pretty much find it on Glitch. People have built over a million projects on there waiting for you to discover them, and new ones are popping up every single day. So what are you waiting for? Get started on making something awesome today at Glitch.com. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's leading marketing platform for small businesses. 
Now MailChimp may have mail in the name, and of course they started out just doing email, but now you can use it for everything from Facebook ads to Instagram ads. There's a bunch of powerful automations that you can use and a whole lot more. Think of it more like a marketing powerhouse for your business. Sign up for a free account today and give it a try. MailChimp, send better email. Now for this week's interview. We're talking with UX strategist Kevin White in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Kevin White, and I am a senior experience designer, or I often call myself a UX strategist. And if you're kind of sensing that I'm like, eh, kind of threw out two titles there <laughs> with, with, with uh, kind of one name, I change my answer depending on who I talk to. Okay. Because I think that UX is kind of a, I call it kind of a, it's kind of an umbrella term right about now. Mm-hmm. Meaning that if you say UX design to some people, it means very, very different things. And so sometimes I'll say UX design, or sometimes if I'm in a different company, I may say a strategist or an architect or different things. So that shifting title is, that's why sometimes I struggle with that. But what do I do? Well, a range of things. And so I may be brought in on a project to kind of determine kind of what a product roadmap should be. So, you know, let's figure out that or let's look at the portfolio of products that we have and think about new products that we should have. And that could be for web, it could be for mobile, it could be for services, it could be for everything from, I don't know, automotive. I mean, there's just such a range of things I've worked on mm-hmm. that I kind of think of myself as sort of a an instrument for experience design. And the platform doesn't really matter. When you say that UX is kind of an umbrella term right now, that that actually leads me to think about how many UX people we've had on the show recently. I'd say maybe within the past year and a half, maybe one out of every five guests has been in UX. And that's not a, a slight to, you know, to what user experience is about, but certainly it feels like, I don't know, it feels like the titles are starting to shift. Like I remember when things shifted from you being a webmaster, a web designer to now being a product designer. And now it feels like product is starting to shift to UX a bit. It's interesting how kind of these titles are changing as as the market changes, as technology advances, et cetera. And sort of like you said, UX is this umbrella term that ends up meaning anything from just design to strategy to writing to it almost can mean any number of things. Yeah. It, oh, God, I'm so glad to hear you say that because when even when I'm talking to somebody else and they say, well, I'm a UX designer, I, I still don't know what they do. <laughs> and our business cards could look the same like side by side but in addition to that this kind of twofold is that the customer may not know what you do either so mm-hmm. i've had customers i've come in and i'm hired to do strategy and when i meet the team they start saying okay well let's get started on these wireframes it's i kind of chuckle now it's not something that's frustrating but it is fascinating that you can have 10 people in the room and half of them may think you do one thing and then, you know, the, the remaining thing you do another. And I mean, it's a plus and a minus. Mm-hmm. Just to your point, it's great that you can call yourself that and you can do so many different things. But it's a, it's a pretty hard sell sometimes, too. Yeah. And I think also because there are so many courses and boot camps and everything like that, that people can really start to to get into UX with a much lower learning curve. I mean, I've seen people call themselves UX designers after they took a few courses on Udemy or something like that, you know. So it's, so it's something <laughs> and, and not to, I mean, no slight to Udemy. I mean, they might be <laughs> not at all. They're doing awesome. But, but I mean, yeah. just in terms of like the fact that 
it's good that the knowledge has become this democratic where anyone can get into it. But then also the problem ends up becoming that people really don't know what that means or what you do. Whereas I think if you say, oh, yeah, I'm a web designer, I'm a graphic designer, people are like, oh, okay, I know what that means. Like the culture hasn't caught up to the terms yet. Exactly. And you have like kind of like this murky end product, too. That that people don't always know what they're going to get. And I think if people don't always know what they're going to get, then inherently, I don't think people always know what to teach. And so like Udemy and and all these other, you know, different places out there, I've looked at some of those kind of outlines of what they teach. Mm -hmm. And it, it looks great. And, but the problem is, is that the promise, I think that's where I really get stuck at is the promise is that you've got the content, you may have a good teacher. But what you're promising people will be able to do after they absorb that content may not be really in keeping with reality Mm -hmm. that you can complete those courses and then get a job. And to our original point, the person that you got that job that you're going to be working with may expect something completely different out of you. Yeah, yeah. That can be confusing and frustrating. And there's no one person to blame. So if it's a college or an online course or whatever, or just an independent workshop, that's kind of a danger that they can run into that I don't think they're aware of. So I guess in your role then as a UX strategist, like you said, it's it's a a term that kind of can encompass a number of different things. What is a, a typical day like for you? What are the sort of tasks that you do? Oh boy. I ask that of other people when I'm doing interviews and they give sometimes great answers and I <laughs> my my days are there. Everyone's a little bit different. So if I had to kind of mash them together and average it, I sound like everybody else. Like you get up in the morning and you deal with the old fashioned email. So I picture email a lot like just package delivery. It's just delivering big content. So you, you fly through that and then you're onto your other communication channels to find out kind of to frame the day. Mm-hmm. Did something happen? Is something raised in terms of urgency that you need to do with immediately? And then I have currently or normally I have multiple projects. And so each project could have its own set of demands. And so if I'm lucky, I may have one day where I work on one project. And (laughs) notice I said lucky. Lucky is in it. It's actually relaxing to have one project, naturally. (laughs) But when you have multiple projects, you may have to sort of shift your mind. I call it kind of gear grinding. Mm -hmm. And so you may have to split the day up into that. And so that's when it starts to look like a typical workday. We're like, okay, there's morning communication. There's lunch. There's doing stuff and then there's meetings and different things like that. But then the following day could look completely different. Like, yes, you're on a project, but the demands of what that project places on you requires you to do different things. For example, just left brain research. Like you're just digging through articles. You're trying to surface data. You're trying to just, you're pulling things out that are of value that can inform what you could do later. And the next day you're designing or another day you're doing storyboards for part of it. I mean, you're literally drawing and Mm -hmm. that feels really good. I mean, you're just, you sort of, well, it's digital drawings. I was about to say, you get to hear the scratch of the pen on the paper. That was the old days. Like, I got to do that. And, but, <laughs> so that's a different kind of reward in, in terms of the work you're doing. And then, then, you know, the following day, it's half data, half web. Yeah, there isn't a typical day. But if I were to really just be forced to average them, like you're dealing with priorities in the morning, and then you're focused on completing tasks and deliverables throughout the day and kind of mitigating any sort of, you know, risk that you may encounter later. So are you leading a team when you're doing this or are you just kind of working on this kind of solo? It depends on, yeah, it depends on the project. So like if I, yeah, if I look on my board now, there's one where there's about, I'm not leading that team. I'm leading 
I think it's myself and another UXer, for example, and there's 43 people on that team, and that's kind of running under Agile framework. And then there would be another like design project where I'm just managing that one. Mm-hmm. And then there's another web project where I'm managing others. And then there's another research-heavy, extremely research-heavy project where I'm leading that. So in another month, I could just be secondary or a few weeks after that, I could be primary. So it kind of just switches up. It's all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> I've learned that that I actually kind of like that. But the thing that I like more is um, I like kind of working with people. And I feel like a contractor sometimes because the company that I'm a partner with right now, there's, well, there's three of us. So we're all about half hour away from each other, which is pretty good. Mm-hmm. But we don't have that office space. We're not, we can't kind of prairie dog over the monitor and ask a question. Yeah, you're slacking and different things like that. And when you're on the smaller projects, you could be one of the only people, you know, you could be working kind of satellite. And I think it can make you a little nutty. Like, you know, you'll be talking to the, the soccer ball, you know, after a while, if you're not careful. <laughs> and so that's kind of why when I'm on the larger projects where there's a lot of people, just there's more conversation, more personalities. And, you know, the get those kind of like, I call them kind of human rewards, that interaction. Yeah. So with, I guess, with the work you're doing at, you're at Echo Studio, is that right? That's where you're a partner? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So with the work at Echo, then it sounds like it's more almost like a collective since everyone is remote. Is that what it is? Do you have like a core office? Nope. Okay. No core office. Yeah. Is yeah, that has that been new for you? No. My prior employment, I think most of the years that I've been doing things, it's always been a traditional setting. Uh-huh. But when the few times that I've went contract, it turns into that, that sort of you're working the home office thing. Yeah. Um, however, my wife kind of did a, she was kind of beta testing this shared office idea that she had. And in beta testing it, she had like this really small office in a kind of a renovated manufacturing building around here. And, and that worked out really well. It was really fun. Mm-hmm. So, and she's grown that. And so in a couple months, she's going to actually have this really full blown shared office space. I'm going to kind of move into that. Oh, nice. So yeah, a little bit of sanity will be in store there because I get to see more faces, more talent and different people, but you still get your heads down time. Yeah. But I have not for quite a while, like worked in an office. I don't think I can work in an office anymore. I think it's too Tell late. me about yours. Too far What's yours on. like though? Really? So, like what? Yeah. Tell me about that. <laughs> so right now I'm at, as people know from listening to the show, I work for Glitch and we're mostly remote. We have an office in New York city where we've got about, I want to say maybe 12 to 15 people that are there. But then, like, every now and then, I think it's every year we all get together. This year, we all got together at the New York office, and we're able to kind of work and meet and talk and stuff. And that was a bit of a new experience for me. The last time that I worked in an office space was 10 years ago. So this month, actually, it was 10 years ago, back when I worked at AT AT&T. And I'm just the kind of person I prefer to work alone. I prefer that silence. I'm like, I can zone everything out and just focus on the task at hand. But I don't like random interruptions from people about stuff. I'm like, just let me finish and get the work done. So even when I did my studio, which I had from 2008 until last year, that was all just all the people I worked with were remote. And we would, you know, meet in a coffee shop or I'd meet at the client location or something like that. And it was so great to transition into this at Glitch because it's still a remote position. And so, you know, we Slack, we do video chats, we email, we keep in, in very constant, regular communication, actually, as we're recording. 
I'm getting communication from work. So we keep in pretty constant communication and, uh, I love it. I love it. It's great. I don't think I can go back to working in a traditional office. Like I don't want to have to deal with the whole thing about showing up in the same place <laughs> right. every day and the coffee's not good and you got to hear the, it's, I, I right. can't, I can't, I'm good with remote stuff. I'm good with that. I am too. I think, it, yeah, I am too. I'm laughing because there's, there's once in a while I have clients that will say, well, can you come on site? And it's rare because I don't have any really local climates, but you know, when I do come on site or when I'm traveling and I have to go into the office, like others, like, mm-hmm. you know, like the others, I used to call them like the day walkers. They would just, <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I'm, trying to, I'm just sitting here like right when I said it, I'm like, I should be careful, like who I'm talking to. But yeah, you, I get kind of back into the, it's a time machine. You yeah. get back into those habits and I start to see, oh, you've got your lunch thing. It goes in this particular spot. You've got your locker, you've got your pattern. Mm-hmm. And I go, oh my gosh, like I forgot. Right. I forgot what that's like. And you either just love what you're doing even more when you see that, or maybe you adopt some of their habits you kind of integrate a little bit of what they're doing, you know, cause maybe you've missed something. Yeah. But yeah, I do love, I do love this setup, but yeah. once and, and, in a while you need to see somebody. Yeah. And I mean, and when I say that, I don't mean to say that like, I don't like working with my coworkers. I do. My coworkers are great. I see them all the time. Like I say, cause we're doing video and stuff like that, but not necessarily in person. And I've thought about at some point doing like a, a coworking space or we have several, co-working spaces here in uh, in Atlanta, particularly right around where I live near downtown. And I mm. went to one fairly recently, I want to say maybe about three weeks ago, just to kind of like test it out to see what it was like. It was well designed. It looked great. It was quiet. Could not work there. I had to be at What was happening there? What, what was going on? It wasn't well, noisy ahead. or anything. It was, I don't know. It was just, I couldn't be comfortable and focused in that space. It just mm. felt like I needed to be home. And I think it's because I don't know when you're, you know, when you're at home, you just have a different feeling in terms of like your focus and discipline and things like that, where I felt like I kind of had to be on a little bit if I was out working at a co-working space, yeah. because then yeah. I would still have people that would interrupt me and say like, oh, we've got cookies in the kitchen. I don't care. I'm in the middle of something. What do you want? And I mean, I don't say that to be mean, but it's also like, no, that's, like that's my concentration that's is right point. there. Yeah, yeah, that's an important point because I think that's the the one piece that a lot of the the co-working spaces have not cracked is the interruption thing. So, and there's other little nuances like I'm a gunslinger. I kind of like to have my back to the window. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's tons of subtleties. Like there's some things I'm working on that my monitor can't face groups of people or, or even if I'm on the plane, right. I have to be conscious of what I'm working on. So there's a directional thing. You might have to take a call or something and you got to like duck into some little exactly. enclave or cubby or something. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole yeah. yeah. And also whether there's a signal or whether there's part of the culture within that shared space that tells people when you can interrupt the others. So mm-hmm. I know that I think I was at, um, I think there was these really cute signs at like Frog Design in their New York office. They had these little headphone signs that if two headphones were in, leave you, you know, leave that person alone. One mm-hmm. headphone out meant, you know, sure, come on up. And then, you know, of course, you know, none, right. feel free. And sounds that works. Like, sounds, like sounds like the the hobo code or something, where you've got like these little <laughs> right. these little things etched on signposts, like oh, there's a cross and a dot. That means I can sleep here. <laughs> I think yeah, and I think that that would work for that would work for the us because if I were working next to you and I had a question, th- there may be no way for me to tell whether you're available. Right. 
because and and plus I have what I call like I kind of have like this like resting bitch face I've learned like I didn't realize I had that <laughs> and, and it's it's horrible I didn't know I'm like why do people would ask me are you okay I'm like yeah I'm just focused and they think you're angry yeah but you know with that kind of look and that kind of face if I'm concentrating I may seem unapproachable and you're like I didn't actually know that like I may be available or I may want to be talked to but yeah there's not a really good way to signal that quite yet yeah we haven't uh, learned. I encountered that even when I met my coworkers for the first time back in May when we had our onsite. And I think they were mostly off in another part of the office, just kind of like, you know, chatting it up. And I was busy focused on something that I had to finish. And people kept slacking me like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> it's like, okay, because you, you just look very intense right now. I was like, I'm working. I'm in the middle of something. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to ask you a question. Like, this is a culture question. Do yeah. you think that has anything like I'm just going for it? Okay. Do you think that has anything to do with being kind of African American? Oh, that's a good question because I'm the only black person that works at my, at my company. I didn't, right I didn't know that. Yeah, I wouldn't know that. But I'm wondering. You maybe ah, put that up. That's a good question. A I'm going to say no, and I and I'm not trying to be democratic by oh, saying that, fair. but like I don't think that's the case because the people that work there they they've interacted with me enough even just on video to know that but you know in person is always kind of like a different a different sort of element and i mean at that particular time i really was like heads down i was like finishing some video stuff i was working very intensely to get it done before the rest of the stuff for the week because i wanted that to be done by the end of the month which is right around the time that we had our on-site I don't think that was the case. And I'm not saying that to be naive or obtuse or anything. I really don't think that was the case. No, 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 no. But it's a a valid question, though. It's a totally valid question. Yeah, but I'm learning you from the inside out. Like like right now, I'm learning you from the inside out. Like your personality is, it's just like, it's jovial. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of energizing. Like it's a great personality. A lot of people would say that, but I haven't actually seen you. Right. And if I were sitting across from you when I was reading you or trying to, I wonder what, your face says versus the, the words that I'm hearing. I don't think there's an answer, but yeah. I had to throw that one out there because sometimes there's certain people who, you know, certain affect, you just, people have sort of learned to read those expressions differently or that culture differently. They may be apprehensive. No, that's very true. And the other thing is that, I mean, I would say it's probably more of a, of me being new than anything else. Cause I just started mm-hmm. in December after I started, I think they hired one more person after me, but she's mm. in the office in New York. So she gets to see most of the other people there every day. So they knew her better because, you know, she's showing up every day and they know her and stuff like that. Whereas they only see me maybe about once or twice a week via, you know, a video chat or something like that. So I think it's more so like, oh, I'm just new and we didn't know who you were yet. Mm. You know, like that sort of thing. I think sure. that might have been what it was like we haven't had time to figure out who you are yet because this was actually the first day of the onsite it was on monday so like they didn't have time to talk to me and learn about any of that they just came in and saw me working so right yeah. right <laughs> that no, was fair fun. question totally totally <laughs> fair question yeah, uh, yeah how did you get started in all of this like like walk wow. me through your origin story where'd you start but did you have like a really creative childhood or anything oh my god i I, I like your version better already. No, it was, it is a tale of, of a bunch of like what not to do. Okay. Yeah. I, I picture my career is a lot like that opening scene in Raiders when you're kind of trying to switch something out for something else. And then you end up <laughs> in a problem that you're running from. That's what I've done. So, oh boy, 
I wanted to be an artist and a, and then later a movie director when I was kind of, by the time reaching the teens, like I always drew, I was okay at drawing. Looking back, I was like pretty, pretty good, but not pro material quite yet. Mm -hmm. And that was just really a, a lack of resources and mentoring. And then when the college portion came up, I, my family never talked about college. They just didn't, I mean, they literally never talked about it. And I remember asking like counselors, like, you know, what, am I supposed to go to college soon? Or am I supposed to have savings? How does this work? Mm-hmm. And I have a particular bad memory of that was where my counselor just, there were pamphlets on her counter where she was supposed to give me pamphlets and kind of inform me about colleges. And she wouldn't give me one. Mm. And there were good counselors there, but I, I had one that probably just for whatever reasons didn't feel like kind of helping me out there. But that resulted in me having no plans and my friends left. So my friends kind of went to college and then I'm sitting around going, uh, time to do something. Like you can work these various sort of retail jobs and food, you know, like working at restaurants, or whatever. But I just started drawing and calling, you know, looking in that this is the classified. So this is pre-internet. So for yeah. people who are pre-internet era, they're picturing like, people walking down in fedoras and black and white film footage. That's kind of, <laughs> it's like, when was that? Oh, is that, you're that old, right? It wasn't uh, that long ago. It wasn't, it wasn't that, long that long ago. ago. <laughs> but yeah, I was looking at, like classified ads in the town, the small town that I was in just didn't have any of those jobs. And so I got lucky. I got a job drawing for the newspaper, you know, drawing ads. And I pushed that. And then I pushed, I want to say like, by pushing, I did a lot of extra things to create a portfolio that would make me attractive to an agency in town that just wouldn't hide. I tried to get there like, oh, so many times it just failed. And then I did get a break and they hired me and I was a production monkey. And that was like the, I thought that was the best thing because back then I wanted to be now, you know, a creative director for a big agency. And that was the best available dream at the time. In my mind, like throwing out the artist thing, I'm like, I don't think I can make a drawing and I'm not going to be a movie director because I would have had to go to college. And so I think I'm going to ride this agency thing for a while. Mm-hmm. And I was, I'm just not a good designer because you can hear like I didn't have a design background. And so I was sort of mimicking and modifying and, and just sort of making scrapping with what I had or emulating what I thought was good design. But I wasn't really a designer. But the benefit to that position was that being a design monkey or what I kind of call, I call it like, I'm using all these animal metaphors, but it's like, I call it like trail donkey work. Like you're just, yeah, they're, they're loading you up with tasks and action change orders and you're just doing things for art directors. Yeah, like so a there, there's mule, a, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you, you learn a lot. Like back then fonts crash your computer that crash systems. You're, you're sending your pre-press. You learn quickly about that or, you know, how to mock up an ad Pantone colors. You learn all those traditional things. Mm-hmm. And then things kind of went downhill. Like the internet came along. I didn't know what it was. And back then, it wasn't obvious how to connect to it. So sometimes people say when the internet came along, everything changed. Like not really, not right away. It didn't. Yeah. Because everyone looked at it as a like, Oh, that's, that's like a hobbyist thing. Mm-hmm. And cause they'd only see people with these weird modems getting on in gray screens with text. They didn't, there was nothing really, it didn't look like a, like a viable platform at all. And I made the shift into that by printing out pages of HTML cause I couldn't afford a book. So I print out pages of HTML highlight the code of you know this html like i guess highlighting pieces trying to figure out what they did yeah i would type it back onto the computer and change it and see what broke so i was Mm. doing construction and that was how i learned how to make my first web page which thankfully the wayback machine can't access because it was horrible (laughs) (laughs) it was 
a lot of people's pages, their early pages were not all that great. And then I got a job at a web company. And the, the same cycle happened where I had a lot of opportunity to learn a lot about how to do things properly, what it was like to have a developer, you know, on hand to kind of do some of the, I guess, all the, the heavy lifting in terms of creating the pages that I couldn't create by hand. Because mm-hmm. I was like, wow, this is a thing. And making games. And so the careers, I, I, that's where I made my biggest, one of my biggest mistakes is I got really frustrated with the job. I had a kind of these ideological differences that I didn't know how to manage. I didn't know how to sort them out. And I ended up just quitting on a Monday. I just oh, said, wow. I'm going contract. And this is going to work. And that was who, who, who. Nobody <laughs> did it that way. Like nobody. Nobody should or I, have I met ever done it that way because it's such a bad idea. At least for me, other people, they can just rock that. I've heard better stories, but I tried to you know, work from home. I had to get another computer. Mm-hmm. So I incurred all these costs of trying to get my, my system up. The first page I created to you know, be, this is the me, you know, call me. This is, I'm an you know, illustrator slash web designer. My yeah. good friend saw it and said, hey, it would be better if you went with nothing than that. That's how bad that design is. What year is this? Oh, this is around, I want to say like early 2000s, like 2003-ish or 2002. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. And I ended up not getting any work. So I went all these months of, I didn't taper. What a lot of people understand now is that they're like, she's like, no way, man. Like, get your work, build your client base, and then kind of gradually go over. You just don't jump out and then start reading the instructions on how to use the parachute on your way down. That's the bad plan. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. And so there was like months and months and months where like, that's when your phone's ringing because people are calling you to pay bills, not because they want to talk to you. <laughs> and that was a kind of a, that was a bad time, but I slowly, slowly, slowly kind of got out of it. And I eventually getting, I got a job that was an illustration job actually. And it was with Frog Design. They, I had to go to New York for it too, which was really scary because I was like, oh my gosh, I may fail at a, at a larger scale. Now I may fail with a plane ticket and other cost involved, but that ended up proving to work out really well. And then it's like, then the story looks like everybody else's where you build your client base and you know people become a little bit more satisfied with things. But then that led to teaching. I taught for six years. So what's interesting is that the same community college that I went to that I didn't have any direction and I just sort of petered out, that same community college invited me back to teach. Wow. At first, I remember having the meeting with the person offering me the job saying, how would you like to teach? And I said, I don't really know what I have to teach students. Like, kind of don't, I mean, they have classes, don't they have it kind of figured out? I just was a little bit clueless as to what I could teach the you know the students at the time. And then when I took the job, I had a fantastic time. I just I did that for six years, much longer than I thought. I mean, it was just it honestly was fun. But at the same time, as you're teaching and it becomes your primary job, you're getting rusty in the other areas. Mm-hmm. And I started to get rusty. And then another lightning strike was that I ended up getting maybe this will sound a little bit rough, but I ended up getting a divorce. And so what happened was I ended up kind of losing my residency because of divorce out. I lost my teaching job because it was at the end of this contract. And then, so I lost my primary job. I lost my residency and I had kind of nowhere to go. And that's the moment when you're like, okay, anything. Yeah. It's like rock bottom. A little bit. It's, it's a version of, or, or, you know, rock bottom relative to that, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And so 
I contacted a designer and said, I, do you have any contract work? And he said, I it just so happened that he had committed to a project, but couldn't do it. And he said, can you, can we do a switcheroo? Like you dive in on this project. And then I go and do something else. And I said, what is it? He says, it's UX. I said, well, what's that? And he said, it's kind of like just UI design, but with a little bit more detail. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I remember going, like, I was so numb from the stress that mm-hmm. I just went, sure, like I can do that. I wasn't even calculating what was it, what I was up against. And I ended up having a, I walked into a big interview that I didn't expect. I didn't actually get scared until I was in the interview and I was getting questions about UX mm-hmm. and I didn't have all the answers. And they kind of did this thing where we're, we're in this precarious position because we've already committed this project. We've won the bid. We have a contractor and now he's trying to switch us to this other guy and we don't have a choice. So it was a combination of you look like you can do it. Your portfolio kind of says you can do it, but we also have to take somebody. <laughs> right. And I remember going home for weeks in this little kind of hotel, this kind of a little uneven residency sort of place. Yeah. Googling UX every night and trying to read and there wasn't a lot available. So I had to make it up and it worked out. Meaning the challenges that they gave me that would have been UX challenges, I was sort of passing the test each time. And then I gradually got a job doing it with another firm like full time. Wow. And, and, and then kind of built from there, right? Yeah. And then that job ended, I ended up leaving that job because like a lot of people, this is not as dark as the other portions, but Things got, I guess I want to say, kind of outgrowing the company. Mm-hmm. And then as a result of outgrowing the company and wanting to go on my own, things got political. The company that I would have gone to that I was really excited about going to, those efforts were kind of sabotaged, we shall say, unfortunately. And I had, and then I was forced to go contract. So I really, I didn't want to go contract. And that's where I, I sort of floated in this zone of wanting to be full-time, having this ideal company that I wanted to work for. They're right around the corner. But I couldn't work for him. Um, it was just kind of sucked. And the funny thing is I finally ended up getting a job for that company. And then I worked for him for about three months and then they closed. <laughs> wow. <laughs> right. Right. And so there's just, and that's what I mean is that there's just these kind of unnecessary moments in time when partly bad decision, but then also bad luck yeah. keeps sort of like knocking you back. And then now Echo Studio has been formed from the ashes of this other company that closed. It's like this company had just like amazing talent, just amazing talent. And unfortunately, they closed and the people dispersed. And I think you maybe you've seen it in the economy now where people sort of disperse and then that talent sort of forms on its own. And there people say, sometimes they say, I don't want to work for somebody else. I want to do my own thing. Yeah, yeah. And then they they have like this like like a, a little mini superpower. There's this individual out there and they're just you can call them and you know bring them into a project and they just they're quick on the uptake they're ready to go mm-hmm. they gel with teams and we're getting a lot of those now and that's we formed into quite a little powerhouse but we're not even a year old but i love what we're doing i, I love my team and i love our clients well i mean it's always good you know when you're especially when you're just starting out with a new project you have all that kind of good fresh energy the work is coming in things are going great and it sounds like to me just based off of everything you just said this is this is where you need to be right now you're so right that that, like you said that mix of bad luck and bad timing and events i mean i think that's important uh, hopefully for the audience that's listening i think it's important to know that design is one of those industries where everyone doesn't enter it in the same way but i think there is like this preferred way that most companies are looking for 
like they want you to have the degree from this school and this much experience and stuff like that to know that you can do the job. But I think as you've illustrated, as long as you know what you're doing and you have the the motivation and the drive and the the work ethic to get it done, that that doesn't matter. If you can get the work done, you can get the work done. And I feel like that hopefully that's starting to change a little bit. I'm starting to see it even now with uh, with big companies, both Apple and Google recently are saying that they're not requiring college degrees for people who are applying, which is a huge shift from before where you had to have the degree and the X number of years of experience and all that just even to get something entry level. I've contracted for both those companies and they are ability-based environments, which is why they're doing as well as they are. But the, I, I love what you said. And it's even to our original point is that when I think we were making the comment about you to me, like not specifically them, but the promise from some people is the promise looks like you can enter the design field at a particular angle or that that's and, and why do they do it that way? Well, it's easier to sell it that way. I'm not even criticizing them. I'm saying, I mean, well, what's my marketing campaign going to look like? If I'm trying to cover all the angles, you can enter the design field. I'm like, I'm just going to piggyback on this kind of more glamorous and more, I guess I want to say proven approach. Mm-hmm. But for us, the us being your, your, some of your listeners who are contractors or other people, we know that some people come through the door with their own theme song and they're just, you know, strutting and other people come crashing through the ceiling. And mm-hmm. those talents, those two separate approaches, they can be equally talented individuals. And I believe it is an ability-based environment. I just don't believe that they always sell to us like it's ability-based, but I understand why. And also because this is, you know, digital design for what it's worth, it's still a very new field. It's what, 30 years old now, maybe, maybe Uh 40-ish, like 30, 40, a very new field if we're thinking about just occupations as a whole in society. So a lot of rules are still being written and rewritten regarding, you know, ability and regarding education and skills. And I mean, even we've seen with just the past 10 years in design, how titles have changed. All this stuff is still going through a constant uh, state of flux. And so being flexible and being able to roll with that, I think, is a much more useful skill than saying that you've gotten this one degree from this one place from knowledge that you've acquired maybe 15 years ago. How has that changed? How have you changed? Oh, oh my times, gosh. You know? Yeah. Do you, I, oh, my God. Am I bringing up too many movie references? I'm starting to realize. But <laughs> that uh, people might understand that or might remember the scene in Inception where there's the hallway where people are struggling to battle in a hallway and the hallway is twisting. Yeah. And they're kind of running what would be a floor or they're running to a wall, to a ceiling. Mm-hmm. That's, I feel like, our field. Yeah. Is where absolutely. other fields work, whether you're going to say nursing or dentistry or some types of engineering fields, the tools have remained constant and the principles are constant and recognizable even as the new people enter the field. Ours, mm-hmm. dude, it's like I started out and I feel like the old timer, like, you know, when I was young, but there was a uh, Photoshop 2.5, I remember 2.5 on a little beige disc. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's iOmega drives with a hundred meg. Oh God. On a, people were like, Oh my God, a hundred. And then every ad for a modem was like, it's the fastest thing. And then I remember when iTunes came out, everybody hated it. Yeah. Because it, because it was gray. There were, and PC users were like, it's not installing properly because it's gray. And Apple was like, we designed it that way. Mm-hmm. And the user's feedback were like, I don't get what you're doing. And no one saw you know, that there's a store on its way. There's going to be a store on your computer soon. 
Yeah. And then even now with everything being cloud-based, well, typically you don't store your music on your computer and uh-huh. you beam music through the air. Yeah. And you, you say things to your lights, like, you know, you issue a command and your lights adjust. The other day it was a switch. You couldn't even change the color <laughs> of your light bulb. And now we're designing for these things and yeah. we're, we're cognizant of how they play a role in our life. And then I think the kind of the, the unseen element of that is that it's affecting our behavior. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to track with all these other things, which is maddening enough. But then we sometimes don't know how these pieces of technology are altering our family dynamic or our friend or, you know, hey, how about that political? Right. <laughs> how about that? And it's not always bringing out, you know, who we truly are. I'm not the person who's going to, I'm not advocating that everybody get rid of the technology, but we haven't really had a time to reflect on what it's doing to us or how to, I guess I want to say, mitigate some of the bad things it's doing. Yeah. I mean, certainly now I think as a lot of technology that we see as common now is starting to like turn 20, like blogging turns 20 in 2019 in terms of like the most well-known, well-used blogging pieces of software like LiveJournal, Blogger, etc. All that stuff turns 20 in 2019. I mean, 20 years ago, if you were on the web just telling all your business, typing into a computer, people thought you were like a crazy person or something, you know. Now blogging and journalism are damn near synonymous. You think about a lot of the journalists that have come up now, they probably started from blogging somewhere. Like, yeah. I think, like, for example, Ezra Klein, who uh, co-founded Vox, like, started blogging with, I think, Daily Costs, like, years and years ago. But yeah, we haven't really had that that time to to have that historical sort of look back at how the tech is changing the culture. Yeah. And yeah. I think that if you missed the people who are blogging, like if you missed that, the value, or you didn't recognize that it was happening, whatever you want to do, mm-hmm. you could have skipped it and you could have gone to Twitter. And so now you can connect directly with the journalist and you can see, well, you can see the, the events that are shaping their opinions before their pieces come out. Yeah. Which is a new power, but that's awesome. But wait a minute, like, what do I do with that? Right. I was going to also say, like, a side effect of this stuff, you know, as you mentioned when you talked about your first website. And how, thankfully, the Wayback Machine can't find anymore. Think about how many technological innovations or things that have been written about and such that happened in like 2000 or 2001 that now no one will ever see again. Mm. Which, which isn't know, that long ago, you know? The nature of a lot of our work is just very ephemeral because it's in this digital space. But how is it being archived? How is it being collected and recounted in any sort of way so people can know kind of the history of how these things happen like i was around for the first big like dot-com bubble burst like that was what 99 2000 something like that i was just starting college then and to be around during that time when all these things were happening now when you start seeing you know these large companies and mergers happen now it's like are we reapproaching that that we learned from the lessons before or there's just a lot of, and it, it applies to the design industry. I know I'm talking largely about technology here, but a lot of that history is still kind of lost, and it's not even that long ago. What do you think people would do if they could see it, though? Hmm. I mean, I would hope they would just at least know that it's there. I don't think people even know that it's there. 
I, I, I don't. And the reason I, I mean, that's a good I question. That's a, that's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how people would react to it because I think that people are reacting to things nowadays in a very, it's a very foreign thing to me right now. I think that people think that their opinion is an indication of their moral stance on things. Hmm. So if you ask somebody, for example, if you hear that somebody likes a particular candidate, or if you hear somebody likes a particular product, or they may follow a particular journalist or whatever, whatever, you could go down the list, that that somehow is an indication of their moral stance or their, their, their ideology, mm-hmm. which is actually impossible. People are more complex than that. But I think that we're being kind of sold a game in which they're not. And yeah. so you think that, I mean, look at how people react to something that somebody posts on Twitter, okay, which is just, there's, there's nothing you can learn by what people post on Twitter sometimes. <laughs> there's just too many things going on. I mean, for people in the UX field who, who are kind of close to psychology, maybe even neuroscience, you just know that the, the tweet before you've, you know, you've eaten lunch and the tweet after have a different shading on it. Yeah. But you could be judged on what you say, you know, on either side of that. And given that fact, I would wonder what people would do if they could look back further in time at some of the publications and some of the websites and whether it would be both intriguing as well as more ammo for some of the people who are, I guess, nefarious or quick to judge or whatever you may want to call it. Mm-hmm. I think both definitely. Certainly, because of social media, I think hopefully the collective awareness in the country has gotten somewhat better. I'm being careful not to get too political <laughs> by saying that. Hopefully, like certainly I think people are now a lot more woke, whether performative or actual, just based on the fact that social media has brought a lot of things from the past into the light or even a lot of stories that we didn't know about into the light. Certainly, I think whenever people have like transgressions like that, the first thing that happens is people run back through their social media and see what they said in the past. You know, exactly. Oh, well, in yeah. 2010, they said da 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 da. So now in 2018, that means we're like eight years have passed. Are you the same person you were eight years ago? Like it's. it's, I, it's I would say that know? like few people. Well, I think of some people that I know that inherently try to remain fixed because it, it the people were, were creatures of habit sometimes. Mm. And, but I think that also people are not really given freedom to kind of scale their thinking with new evidence and and they're not able to do it at least in real time because they're not very comfortable doing it, especially now. So if you want to just kind of toy with a topic like face to face, or if you want to toy with an idea online, it's kind of dangerous. It wasn't always that way. Yeah. And I think that that's unfortunate because I kind of have this thing in my head I call the elevator test. So Mm. And I would welcome people to try this sometimes that when you get into the elevator with a bunch of people or maybe even one, and as soon as that door closes, there's a kind of a new guideline of behavior <laughs> and, and you, you get a little nicer than you normally would be. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and so I would just contrast that with, if you took something that, that you, you've seen somebody say negative about somebody on social media, or you've heard it in the news, or maybe you've said it yourself take that comment and and ask yourself, would you say that in an elevator when that door closes? Mm -hmm. And I don't think we would. And that's the bridge that I don't think that we're going to solve 
we're, that's not something that we should be trying to solve, but we just haven't taught ourselves to be aware of the difference when we, you know, there's anonymity, you're lacking facial expressions, you're just typing into the computer, hitting enter and going about your day, you don't know what you did. Yeah. And I think the minimum, minimum, at some point, maybe in our future, that people will begin to kind of inherently be cautious about that, or again, be more cognizant about what they're doing. But right now, it's just the, the what I would say is the the financial model of those platforms certainly don't want us to do that. Mm-hmm. The attention economy, the whole, like it's, it's really, really important to say somebody like Facebook that you're on a minute longer. Yeah. A minute longer after that. And after that and how they get you to that minute, it's whatever it takes. Right. It's, it's a pop up. It's something, it's something. And that's a designed experience though, even with that. Right. So I know that I don't personally, I haven't worked with Facebook, so I don't know the team, but they're just an incredibly talented group of people. However, I don't think that, I think that their, their sort of incentive is, is tuned in such a way that they're, they, they will inherently produce things that won't address these issues. Yeah. But you've got the talent to do it. Definitely. You've got the talent to do it. But yeah, as, as, I guess as long as I've been around, I'm kind of surprised Facebook worked. It was just great timing. <laughs> Look at that. It, it like, really it was, was because just it, great timing. Was because it? there were like, similar. I mean, there were similar, you know, types of services out there. I nope. worked for one before Which Facebook. One? This was in '99. I worked for College Club. Do you remember College Club? Does that sound I familiar? No, I'm, no. I'm 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 totally dating myself. Hopefully, somebody that's listening remembers College Club. So, College Club was like a precursor to Facebook, where they would have news. You'd have your own little profile and page and stuff. And then each different like universities and things could have their own separate like section or something like that. And it was very innovative for its time. I remember you could get like people could send messages to you and there was a phone number that you could call and the messages would be read back to you like through a text to speech engine. It was great. It flamed out tremendously because I mean, it got really super popular. I was a, I was a campus rep for Morehouse. And then I expanded and became a campus rep for the whole Atlanta University Center. And I mean, it was at times where I think at at one point they were giving away like $10,000 a week and they were giving away vacations and stuff. And I mean, it was, again, this is this wild startup time where companies were flush with money and were just doing crazy shit. (laughs) Was your competitor at the time, would it have been like a classmates.com? Our competitor at the time was probably Friendster or... Oh, my gosh. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. I remember Friendster. But then I also remember CompuServe and the Juno. And then yeah. I, I used to joke that America Online, like there's like a, a, a layer in the Earth's crust where it, it is CompuServe <laughs> and, and America Online disk that they would send you. Just I, generously I, I, in the mail. I, I, yeah. But, I think our competitors at the time were maybe... Because this was 2000... I don't think MySpace was around then, but certainly Friendster was mm-hmm. and maybe Black Planet slash Mahente.com slash Asian Avenue was when, like a, where did where did MySpace fit into that? I, I feel like MySpace came a little bit after. I wanna say it came after because College Club ended up going out of business in like two thousand Maybe 2000, 2001, something like that. I remember this because the guy who was like the district rep who had um, 
like gave me because like they gave us these cameras like, again to show how long ago this was my camera could fit a floppy disk in it like Ooh. not a floppy disk not not like the big three and a quarter inch but the like one you know the the plastic hard disk not mm-hmm. like a zip disk but like a 1.44 megabyte disk that was the oh. memory card so that fit inside the sony mavica camera i remember he gave that to me and everything and the last time i saw him he had the stock options that college club gave him lining the inside of his trunk of his car. Wow. <laughs> cause he had to come and like pick my camera up and stuff. He's like, well, you know, it's going out of business. Cause they ended up getting, I think bought by student advantage and then student advantage ran them for a while. And I, I don't know what college club. You has, still have has that camera. Now. You have that camera anywhere. I should buy it. I'm sure it's on eBay. I'm sure it's on eBay for like $10 or something. Like that. <laughs> I know. That was a horrible <laughs> the tech that you paid $800, $900 for. It. People are just like, just take it. They're just yeah. like, just pay the shipping. That's how it is all the time, I guess. But, but wow. like, it was, but like, it was amazing because that sort of stuff, I mean, it was something that was documenting. I mean, I remember, frankly, because I had, you know, friends that I ended up bringing on as other reps too. And we were documenting like college life in the AUC at the turn of the century. We were talking about the protests that went on. I, I mean, I took so many pictures and talked to so many people and people set up so many accounts. And when I tell you all of that stuff is gone to the annals of time, it's gone. It'll, I don't it know is. where any of that stuff is. It's, Dust in the wind or on yeah, a hard drive it, somewhere. I mean, exactly. There's no telling where all that stuff is. Or you've had to archive it yourself. And it, when you archive those kind of things yourself and pull them back out, it feels like you're the, you know, you're pulling out a projector and trying yeah. to show people later. Like, eh, And even then, those aren't archival formats. Like, we didn't really have non-lossless images back then. You know, <laughs> you pull you pull out the Did JPEG you? now and it's completely artifacted. It's, it's terrible. And it's tiny. Yeah. No yeah. Record, people are <laughs> they're leaning forward and they're squinting and they're looking at you like, what What am I looking at? You're like, ah, forget it. You know, like, but... I show, oh, I show my just, friend... Just... Yeah, I show my friend Chris some pictures I had took of him. Uh, this was our freshman year in 99. Now he teaches at uh, Ohio State University um, in Columbus. And he's like, man... I, he's like, how long ago was this? I was like, this is 1999. Like, it's 2018 now. I I still have that picture because I kept it. But like, all the stuff that happened, all of the times that we spent together, and just, I mean, just it's all just gone. It's just was it dusty. two megapixels? Is that what that would have been like in terms of the size? It was probably like are we getting are we getting too nerdy? Oh, right. oh no, that that's not possible. <laughs> it's not possible on Revision Path to get too nerdy. That's not possible. Uh, you can always get yeah. nerdier. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you said Friendster, it was the stir. Like there was a time when everything was the stir. Like there was the Napster, and it yeah. was that was like a, a thing. It was, and then it was, re- I guess, replaced by the i when it was the uh, the iMac, and people didn't know what to think of that. But and then wow. there were the, the missing vowels and names and stuff. <laughs> oh right, right. Because yeah, Twitter didn't used even... to have an Twitter didn't used to have an i or an e. It was just twttr, and then oh. it became Twitter. Yeah, just all kind of just crazy stuff. I feel like I'm practicing them. We're kind of doing a little practice for being in the nursing home later. I can just, this is exactly the kind of conversation I'm going to be having. Oh, but gosh. honestly, I mean, think about it. If, if you were a product designer that came, that came around in like 2013, do you know the internet that came before you and the decisions that were made and the services that were around that brought you to the point where you could now be a product designer at this company? That's why I say this is a, a very, it's a field that is very, young but also we have really not maintained or taught or kept much of its history 
the fact that most of it is on Wikipedia and anybody can change it is kind of sad. That took out what was it? Uh, Microsoft's X. It was Encarta. Encarta, yeah, yeah, a free a free platform where anybody could do adjustments and and, and tweaks to it as they want. Uh, beat out the Microsoft, you know, Encarta. Yeah. That is mind blowing. But on that on that note, though, that's where I think echoes from the past are playing a role now. In that, I, I, I start fights this way, so it's like. When I say that um, branding is not as important as a lot of designers would like to think it is, okay, and then and then you have to kind of look for the escape when you say that. But in good company, you're allowed to kind of dig into that a little bit. And the the spirit of that comment is that in advertising, when you walked into the store in the old days, it was just the packaging. You you had no reviews. You had no you had no sense of what what product was better than another. Yeah. And its position on the shelf also mattered. So, you know, there's certain things you just didn't notice that you would like um, had you been able to see it. And the designers of those packages, it, it was absolutely true that branding like made or, you know, made or, I guess, broke a product. And now it's still important. And people have actually expanded branding to mean more than packaging. So if you say branding is just packaging, they're going to be like, dude, you know, branding, <laughs> branding is, I mean, it's the tone if, it's, it's, if there's audio involved. There's the jingle. Yeah. There is the the button interactions. There's the you know the feedback that you're getting from whatever you may be using. You know, there's a loading screen. There's a kind of the language of the illustration that could be used. You know, not to mention the service. So that's that's what some people. But sometimes, you know, whether it be colleges or workshops or different things, they're not talking about branding that way. No, no, they're just talking about it strictly in a a visual design aspect. Yeah, and I think that marketing still gets smuggled into that title. And and so I've said to people that. I wish that, you know, branding were covered in that way, that it, it was really, really demonstrated and really made clear that it encompasses all those other things. But when it's talked about the other way, that's when I start getting a little bit, I know, I guess I want to say get a little bit plucky. I start saying, wait, you're not as important as you may think if you're going to only talk about in terms of packaging. Because I'm like, just go to Amazon. And, like, really, how many people go to Amazon? And they're like, oh, yeah, this product's got like a 82% here. It's rocking, but I don't know about that packaging. <laughs> like I'm, I'm not going to purchase this product despite the community raving about it because I'm, I'm not too happy with the way that it's branding looks. Now that would have been true. There was a time when that was absolutely true, mm-hmm. but I don't think that it's as true as it used to be, but I see people leveraging that in some of the, I guess, whether it be again, the workshops, education, or some of these kind of ill-fated ventures to kind of capture everybody in and, and get them to, you know, take a branding class or take a marketing class and they don't reveal these things. So, yeah. One thing I've been getting into a lot lately is sound design. Oh my Um, gosh. Yeah. Like I I mentioned this before we started recording, but I don't think I mentioned it here on the show that I'm working on a podcast with my job, which the podcast should be out by the time this interview publishes function with a Neil Dash. But as I'm going through all of this, you know, we were working with Vox and one of the things that's you know, they've got their design department and, you know, they're handling all of that stuff. But, you know, we had to think about, well, what do we want the show to sound like? Anil is a big fan of like New Jack Swing and Prince. And so we wanted to have those elements inside of the show. But it's Mm -hmm. like, how do we put that in the show? One, without copyright infringement, but two, with also sort of striking the inquisitive tone that we want listeners to have when they press play. How do we do that with sound? 
know? my gosh. Yeah, there's a a podcast. I think it's 20,000 Hertz. 20,000 Hertz. I love that show. Yes. Oh, Sorry. They did one about the <laughs> Intel. I'm trying to think which episode number it would have been. Like I, there's. It was fairly recent. They did one on Jingles. I, I listened to that one. Yeah, and they, they did a little backstory on the, the Intel. And when I hear that, oh, I just get so excited. And I don't know anything about that field. Yeah. I, you know, I, I listen to all types of music. And I really mean that. I really do listen to all types of music, and I have appreciation for it. I'm not somebody who has – I just don't have the background to talk about it in a really articulate way. Mm-hmm. So people who are like 20,000 hertz, they kind of you know pull back the curtain and talk about the mechanics and the motives. And it's just so fascinating. And it also makes me think – I'm never going to, I'm going to hire somebody. I'm hiring that out. Like, yeah, <laughs> there's no way I'm going to attempt that. But the people who do are just, yeah, that's amazing too. It's amazing that we have the tech to do that. I think some of the listeners are people I know you can get on your computer and mess around and you, you might come up with something pretty awesome. Yeah. And it's also that's, something where you're, you're taking hopefully the skills that you've learned as a designer and just applying it to a different medium. Um, does it translate? I, I sometimes I think it does. Like yeah, even think, even yeah. with what I do with Glitch, for example, I mean, you know, we have a theme song. Like we're we're it's a <laughs> Glitch is a software as a service kind of thing where you go into the browser, you can make apps and websites, but we also have a theme song. And we mm-hmm. use that theme song across our videos. And so as we're tasked with creating more media, how do we take that and extrapolate it out? to video or to other podcasts or things like that. Cause yeah, we could keep using the same song, but like how do we break that onto different effects or, you know, stingers or things like that. So I'm even taking into account all of that sort of stuff because I feel like sounds and music can sometimes have certain connotations. Part of that, I think just comes from how we've been conditioned to hear things. So for example, if you hear Oh God, I'm trying to think of an example. If you hear like the plucking of strings, like pizzicato, you might think someone is being sneaky or something like that because we've been conditioned to think that through sound design and movies and cartoons and television and stuff like that. So those are the kind of things I have to sort of consider when it's like, how do we create these different audio? Like, it's not just as simple as going to like audio jungle or whatever and buying something. It's like, how does it really fit in with our values. How does this song express me as a, as a company? You know, <laughs> so you understand it though. Like, yeah, but you understand in a way that this sounds going to kind of create this texture and meaning in your mind. Yeah. So I think that you're on, like, I would be confident that you're on the right path and either, either create or direct it. But I hope so. so. This, <laughs> oh, right. like, I hope those people aren't listening to the podcast that know that, you know, you're being tasked with it. But there was a really fun game that I was like playing with my wife. We'd, you know, throw up like we had, a, you know, the Apple TV and you could watch mm-hmm. trailers. You can do this anywhere. But before we would watch a movie, we would try to guess what the first thing they were going to hit you with. So is it the hammer? Mm-hmm. Like if it's, you know, I'm, I'm just going to make a general dish, like it's a Michael Bay film. You got to get hit with the hammer or the foghorn first to get your attention. Like, you know, stuff's happening. You got to pay attention to the dire. Or are you going to get hit with the piano? Like the kind of that, that tapping note that tells you that there's a mystery. Or were you going to get hit with that someone's just staring at the camera and there's just dialogue mm-hmm. and it's, 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 you know, it's going to try to hit your heart. And we'd play this game. And um, if you heard a ukulele, you know, you're supposed to feel good. And, you know, these are the pros. So these people are creating these trailers and here we are at home laughing, yeah. you know, sometimes that we get it right. But 
the, you know, that's the mechanics of it. So then when you, when it gets really bad, like when, the worst examples are political ads oh, or yeah. uh, I don't, I don't have cable, so I don't see a lot of, I don't see a lot of television. And when I do, I'm just shocked how just so painfully obvious some of the advertising motives are. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's when I think it probably still being used really, really well. Oh yeah. But I'm surprised how well it works sometimes, but you and I and other people, maybe we're just, I think we're kind of, we're, we're closer to it. We're designers. And so we want to get in the, like the how and the why, and it makes us think about it. Maybe other people just works on them. I don't know, but yeah, I try that game sometime. Just look at a, you know, looking at the one sheet or just looking at that little preview of a movie and then try to guess what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. And it's, <laughs> it's really funny when you're right. Uh, maybe also sad. I don't know. <laughs> When you look back on your career as a designer, what do you wish you would have known when you started? Mm, I wish I would have understood first that the product is not mine, it's the client's. Mm. And I think that that would have helped me understand the boundaries. Boundaries is in, you think you're putting in kind of your, you know, your blood, sweat and tears into the work and this is going to hit your portfolio and this is just going to be the greatest thing, but it's the clients and it's sometimes you don't always know what they want and they're going to try to take you on a journey. You may disagree with that journey, but it's theirs. Yeah. And that's important. And because it allows you to be a little bit, I wouldn't have said that I was consumed with ego. I would say I was confused. Mm. I think that people who inherently their, their egos play a role that it can hurt them. And I think that that hurt could go away really quick if they understood that, like, you are, you're an instrument, it sounds cold, but sometimes you're the client's creative hand. Mm-hmm. And not always. Um, another would be, I think, to accept that trust that you can learn something in time to make it meaningful. I would stress myself out a lot because I would... I would be faced with something. I wasn't sure if I could do it. Mm-hmm. And that's that stress is created from that uncertainty would kind of paralyze my efforts. Don't, don't work. Don't do an all nighter. <laughs> like don't, don't do that. I worked, I see, um, I see people now, not a lot though. I think people work life balance is It's creeping into people's vernacular. So that's really great that people are talking about work life balance. But I came from an era where, you know, you sometimes were just at the printer or at a printer in an office or you were designing as, as long as you possibly could. Yeah. And there's a there's such a diminished return on your mind that you're not even you don't even know that you're just incapable of producing something creative after a certain amount of effort because mm-hmm. um, you're just piling it along. You're in your head. You're trying your best to kind of move along. But when you try kind of a different practice where you kind of take more breaks and there's more balance in your life. Yeah. You'll find that ideas come quicker. It's just, you have kind of more fluidic relationship with your projects than you normally would. And you're not going to know that until you're on the other side of it. So I would go back and talk to that guy and say, okay, you know, stop. Mm -hmm. Like, just don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. And there's a lot of don'ts. I mean, there's just a, a lot of don'ts, but those are sort of the, the top ones, I think. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind, of, uh, what kind of work do you want to be doing? Well, because of Echo, exactly what I'm doing. I actually have a project that is 
just so intensely fascinating. It's about helping people in need. And I feel like I'm built for that. And this is one of those first times that I've got a project that I feel like I'm so built for it that it consumes me even as I'm going to bed. Mm. It, and it feels easy. And I think I've stumbled on top of a topic that I really like. And at the very least, I want complex projects. So I hope I continue doing work on very complex problems that do not have answers, that people haven't been able to answer. So I'd like to take a swing at those. I want to keep working with all these growing numbers of just incredibly talented people that are out there. And I, when I meet them, sometimes I won't even know what their title. Like, like I used, I said at the beginning, like, well, what's the UX? Like, what do you do? Someone may tell me their title and I may not quite understand what they're doing, but it's just, I love kind of interlocking with those people and learning more. Mm-hmm. So more of this at a greater complexity, I think that's what I would like. Okay. Well, Kevin, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Speaking of blogs, I have a dusty <laughs> one. Oh my God. I, uh, there was my old contracting blog, so it's mommydesign.com. And it's essentially a blog, and it's a, it just a kind of a potpourri of different things. Mm-hmm. And my clients, I learned my clients used to visit it to kind of select styles and different things or things that they wanted me to do back in the day. But I haven't updated it because I kind of don't know what to do with a blog quite anymore. I think I, I have things. I have things I want to share, but they're under NDA. Mm-hmm. So you don't get to share as much as you want. But I'm, it's still there. There's still stuff there. So there's that, and then I'm on Twitter. I think I'm just like, hello, Kevin White on Twitter. And I'm, uh, yeah, you could, there's, there's, you know, random thoughts and interesting article things I find of interest or things that are industry specific, like, you know, like a lot of people are doing. So if you, if you follow me on Twitter, don't worry, you're not going to get a bunch of collection of silly updates. I try to remain relevant and interesting. So, yeah. All right. Well, Kevin White, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I really want to thank you for just kind of sharing your story. And I know that's, I say that to a lot of people on the show, and I know for people who are listening, might think like, oh, you always say that. But I mean, just in terms of the fact that you sharing that, you know, you came into this industry in a very sort of quote unquote non-traditional way. Um, I think it's important for people to know that, especially for, you know, especially just where wherever you started in life. If you have an interest in this and you can find your way into this industry, there's no right or wrong way as long as you are a practitioner of the craft and you take it seriously and you have the passion and the drive for it. That's really what matters. It's more about the ability. And I know that, you know, when you're looking at jobs and things, it says you got to have experience and went to this college and all that sort of stuff. But I think what the industry is coming around to now, as we've discussed in this conversation, is that. It's really about the ability and what you can bring to the table. So uh, certainly, I think from what you've shared, you bring a ton of experience, life experience, work experience, design experience to the table. And I'm glad that you were able to share that with our audience. So thank you uh, for coming on the yeah. show. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you asked. And I hope that when people hear some of that, they, they get the feeling of, oh, good, I'm not crazy. Or <laughs> part of that's my story. Like, I feel a little bit better. And maybe there's another group of people that go like, man, I'm so glad I didn't do it that way. Um, <laughs> but I'm honored. I'm I'm just incredibly honored that we got to connect this way. So thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it, man. Thoughts of love are in your mind. And that's it for this week. 
Big thanks to Kevin White and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Kevin and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Did you know that people spend over 3 billion minutes daily on Facebook? With an audience of over 2 billion users, that's pretty impressive. People use Facebook to share and connect with the people they care about, and their experience is the core of the Facebook design team. Sound interesting? Then learn more about Facebook design and what they do at facebook.com forward slash design. Glitch is the friendly community where everyone can discover and create the best stuff on the web. If you're new to Glitch, then just pop on over to the homepage and explore some of the featured projects or categories to try it out. It's like a familiar app store, but almost everything is created by regular people like you. Everyone from students just learning how to code to some of the best programmers at the biggest tech companies in the world use Glitch, and they're ready to help you out if you get stuck. Ready to get started? Then visit glitch.com today. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well, including us. MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute or two. It helps more people learn about the show here in the U.S. and internationally. It helps the show by bumping us up in the rankings for design podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Push that.